Well, good morning, and Merry Christmas, and welcome to Sailorville Church. Uh, if you're visiting with us, glad to have you here today. If you brought a Bible with you, you can find Matthew chapter 2, otherwise the words will be up there, no problem, Matthew chapter 2, and we'll be beginning uh, toward the very end of the chapter where we, where we left off last time. We are... Uh, doing a series, you're seeing an Emmanuel, God with us, which is what Emmanuel means. It was one of the names that Jesus is given in the Bible. But I can't think of one time, at least in the gospel accounts, where somebody said, hey, there's Emmanuel. (laughs) They never identified him as such, uh, one-to-one, that is. But what is in a name, anyway? Isn't that what the Juliet said to her lover, Romeo? What's in a name? And that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as as sweet, right? Names. Names sort of serve as labels for you and me. Some fit. Some, not so much. Anybody know anybody by the name of Judas? His name is synonymous with infamy, with betrayal. But his name actually means praise. Anybody here got a nickname? Raise your hand if you got a nickname. I'm not going to call you out. Okay, lots of you. My mom tried to nickname me PJ when I was a kid. It didn't stick. But when I showed up on Monday in my sophomore year during wrestling season, 14 pounds overweight, And my coach, seeing that, weighed me, and in front of the entire team, took his clipboard, threw it down. He goes, you sap! That stuck. (laughs) The entire year, I was known as the sap. After all, what does a name do? But it it describes, right? Right? There are many names that you and I are familiar with, and some of you possess these names that find or found their origination in occupations like Smith and Miller and Carpenter and Brewer and Barber and Gardner and Hunter, Wheeler, even racial names like white and black and brown. Names in the Bible and enduring Bible times were often in connections almost inextricably tied to the circumstances around someone's birth or the history at the time. Like Methuselah, whose name is synonymous with, with age. You know, somebody who's really old, that's Methuselah because he's, he's the oldest guy at least recorded in history in the Bible. But his name portended something. His name actually means when he is gone, it shall be sent. And the it was referring to the flood which destroyed the world. Remember in 1 Samuel, you have Hannah who's begging God to give her a child. And through a series of circumstances, through a promise from God, through the high priest, sure enough, she has a child and she names him Uh, with a Hebrew word that sounds like God has heard me. So in essence, an answer to prayer. And yet just a couple of chapters later, when the Jews go to war with the Philistines and you have 
Eli, who's not a good high, not a good high priest, his two sons are worse, Hophni and Phineas. They go out, they're not really trusting them. They they just they they realize they're not doing so well spiritually, so they bring the Ark of the Covenant with them because the Ark is the represent uh, representation of the presence of God, the glory of God. It will save us, they said. And they go out, the Philippines put a smack down on him. Hophni and Phineas are killed. Eli, the high priest sitting back, finds out his sons are, have been killed and the ark has been captured by the Philistines and he drops dead. Meanwhile, Phineas, one of Eli's sons who died in battle, his wife is about to bear a child. And when she hears of all of this calamity, the death of her father-in-law, the death of her brother-in-law, then the death of her husband, and then the capturing of the ark itself. She goes into agony. She gives birth to a child, and she names him Ichavod, or Ichabod. Literally, Kavod is the Hebrew word for glory. The glory is gone. It's gone. Names have significant meaning. And then there's Jesus. About a thousand years later, he comes. His name, which is above every name, the name the Bible says everybody's going to have to bow to, his name means the Lord saves. And he certainly lived up to it. Amen? The Lord saves. Do you know there are over a hundred different titles, a hundred different names for Jesus in the Bible? Some people think there's over 300. That might be a bit of a stretch. But that's a lot of names. Would you agree? A lot of names. I mean, you make an impression, you're going to get a nickname. You make a big impression, you might get two. But a hundred? In his excellent devotional, 100 Portraits of Christ, Henry Garropy writes, Though a name is descriptive, it is also restrictive. A name or a title has a self-imposed limitation and no one could begin to describe or define Jesus Christ. He is, Garropy writes, in a sense, the unnameable one. And so if you've been with us in this series, we have encountered several names. Here's the first few that you're familiar with in chapter 1 and verse 21 where we, where we read this. I think we're going to pull it up here. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people. See, here, there's the definition of his name. He will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, say it, which is interpreted for us by Matthew, God with us. And so in this context and in this series, we've, we've already, just in this context of Matthew 1 and 2, we've come across not one, but eight Eight names, eight exalting, beautiful, strong, and loving names for Jesus. We already saw one in verse 18, Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ. Later on, you shall call his name Jesus. We've already heard that. That means the Lord saves. Emmanuel, interpreted for us, God with us. He's called in chapter 2 and verse 2, the king. He's called in, in verse 4, the Christ or Messiah, that, the anointed one. He's called in verse 6, ruler and shepherd. And he's called in verse 15, where we left off last week, son. Eight different names, just in this context alone. But there's one more name. There's one more name. 
It's not a, it's not a beautiful name. It's not an exalting kind of a name. It's not a strong name, certainly not a loving name. And this is the name we're going to look at today. It's the name Nazarene. And we pick it up where we left off in verse 19. But before we pull up that scripture, just a little context for those of you who are just showing up. So we've been looking at here is Jesus. He comes along as prophesied. He's in the right lineage. He's in the right line. He's born of a virgin. He's virgin conceived. He's, he comes, Matthew presents him as the king. So the wise men, the magi have showed up. They've come with their treasures to present to the king. God then warns Joseph to get out of town, get out of Dodge. And by night he does so. Doesn't tell him for how long. He goes, go down into Egypt, remain there until I tell you otherwise. And so he bugs out. With Mary and Joseph, Jesus is taken to Egypt. He may be as old as two. We don't know for sure. And how long does he stay in Egypt? We don't know that either. Maybe a couple of months, maybe a couple of years. But he's down there, as we said, probably in the community of Alexandria, where Alexander the Great had created a community down there for Jews. Stands to reason they may have been in that particular area. But now it's time to come back because the ones who were trying to kill him have died. So here you go, verse 19. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, the way he always, God always spoke to Joseph, in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, that, well, we'll see who that is, was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. That would be north, about 50 miles. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He would be called a what? A Nazarene. So Herod the Great is dead. We've been hearing quite a bit about him the last couple of weeks. That megalomaniac who just bled death, smelled of death, was a murderer, the murder of the babies in Bethlehem and surrounding uh, regions, which took place after you know, Jesus had gone down into Egypt, would also kill off a wife, and just five days before he died, he'd kill one of his sons. I mean, he was such a murderer that the Caesar at that time in Rome... His name was Augustus. Augustus made a joke. Augustus said it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. And the reason, the joke behind that was that Herod had some Jewish blood in him and so the Jews don't eat pork. At least the pig would be safe. That was the idea. It's interesting to me that in verse 20, Herod isn't mentioned when he says, those who sought the child's life are dead. He's not even mentioned it reminded me of the proverb that says, the name of the wicked shall rot. Have you ever read that? Which, by the way, historians tell us Herod was rotting before he would rot it in life, before he rotted in the grave. He, was, he had such a, such a disease-ridden body. He died in great agony. 
Sounds fitting for a guy like that, but the agony for Herod, and perhaps for some of you when you die, had, had, will just begin. But hey, ding dong, the, the king was dead. <laughs> the wicked king, the king was dead. Ding dong, the wicked king is dead. So to Joseph, wake up, you sleepyhead. You know, rub your eyes, get out of, get out of bed. Wake up, the wicked king is dead. You know, if you're familiar with that Wizard of Oz little ditty, you know the last line is, he's gone where the goblins go. Below, below, below. And that's where wicked people die and go. Joseph is told to go. And in verses 19 through 21, I can't get over the generalization of God's original direction here because he's been doing this repeatedly in the Christmas story. The specificity is only, did you see it? Go to the land of Israel. That's all it says. That's a pretty good area. Do you remember if you were with us back in chapter 2 and verse 13? I just alluded to it. Joseph, take the child down into Egypt. Remain there until I tell you otherwise. Doesn't give him a time stamp. I love that. I love that. My, I tell people all the time, my, when it comes to knowing God's will in life, that's a, that's a noble task to seek. But at the end of the day, we want to be like, the, like Abraham's servant when he returned after getting a wife for his son. And this is my, fav, my personal favorite when it comes to God's will and knowing it. When he said, as for me, being on the way, the Lord led me. I love it. That's, that's what I want to be able to say someday, don't you? As for me, that's personal. Being on the way, that's experiential. The Lord led me. That's spiritual. That's what I desire. You show me a man who knows all the details of God's leading, and I'll show you a self-led man. When the psalmist said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my what? Path. He was talking about literally a lamp. It was little more than a candle that would only light the immediate area, the step in front of you, not the thousand out there. It wasn't a high beam he was referring to. God wants us to stay in step with him. And that's the reason why whenever I sign my emails, I'm talking about hoping to see you on Sunday, I always sign it, LW. And in fact, just the other day, a friend of mine, recent uh, Christian, came upon the book of James, the fourth chapter, and this is the text he sent me. I've noticed that when you speak of the future, you usually follow with Lord willing. It appears that now I know why. <laughs> and he was right. I never want to assume these things. So if you've been coming to Sailorville Church for the past several months, you have, you have encountered the detours, right? Those cursed detours. I, I really wondered at the beginning if these detours would discourage our people. But in, I, what, I, what I discovered, what you discovered, we just all kind of got used to it, right? You just kind of get used to it. After all, there's nothing you can do about it. 
I, I, I'm all, I, whenever I think about things that you can't do anything about, I think about Glenn Buxton. He was the lead guitarist for Alice Cooper. Uh, through a series of circumstances, he moved to Clarion, Iowa. We led him to Christ. He came to the church that I pastored. He had all kinds of sayings. He was a funny guy. But uh, one of them was when you couldn't do anything about something, he'd always say, like they say in prison, oh, well, <laughs> I love that. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> now, followers of Jesus don't say, oh, well, they say, as for me, being on the way, the Lord led me. Amen. My son was traveling down to Florida a couple of years ago uh, to meet his family. He sent them on ahead of him. They were having a vacation. So he drove by himself uh, to Florida. And he was about halfway there. He was actually right out, right as he, go he was going into Louisville, just a violent thunderstorm took place. And it was just coming down torrentially. And he was in a really, really sketchy, dicey neighborhood. And he said, Dad, I didn't know what to do. This was like the scariest neighborhood I'd ever been in in my life. And I thought, what do I do? I can't keep going. I got to turn in somewhere. I got to turn in the first place I can go. And he turned in and he looked up when he turned in and said, Southern Seminary. <laughs> So he came under the guards there, was able to fall asleep and get up later on. But as for me being on the way, the Lord led him. So Joseph leads his family back to Israel. And he's not told where, but it's safe to assume he's heading back to Bethlehem, having sort of established himself there at the time of Jesus' birth a few years earlier, perhaps. But, but Bethlehem was near Jerusalem, as we heard Pastor Jason say a couple of weeks ago, just six miles away. And while he's going there, he finds out that Archelaus, the wicked son of the even more wicked Herod the Great, great but Archelaus killed 3,000 Jews during one Passover. I mean, Joseph is fear-stricken when he sees this. <laughs> and, the, and, and his fear is legit, according to the angels. Yeah, not a good place to go. Go take the detour. And he ends up 55 miles north to Nazareth, where it all began. And once again, God could have protected his son uh, from Archelaus, right? During that time, he could have protected him uh, right under his nose, but he didn't. And I just find it fascinating how the Christmas story is sort of an admixture of miraculous and natural. But the ultimate reason he goes to Nazareth is because, well, the scripture tells us, look at it again, end of verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that, what was spoken of by the prophets might be fulfilled that he should be called a Nazarene. There's the reason. That's the ultimate reason. There was a fulfillment. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Because we have been seeing all kinds of scripture fulfilled in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea. But where is this at? We, we automatically want to find the connection. Where is, where is uh, you know... Uh, there's got to be something here. He, he shall be called a Nazarene. Where, where's that found in the Old Testament? Well, guess what? It's not there. Now, some scholars like to go to Isaiah 11, where the servant of the Lord or the Messiah is called the branch. And the Hebrew word for branch is the word nazir. It sounds like Nazareth. So they, well, that's actually the prophecy that, that, uh, that Matthew is referring to here. But that's a huge stretch to me. I don't think that's true at all. 
did you notice, and I read it distinctly, I'll say it again, did you notice it? So that was spoken, that which was spoken by the prophets, not prophets, singular, but prophets, plural. It was a common thing. The prophets were saying, Messiah will come from Nazareth. He'll be a Nazarene. But not every, listen to this, not every prophecy Not every prophecy is recorded prophecy. Not every prophecy becomes scripture. Do you believe that? You should. In fact, there's even scripture, there's even scripture that is quoting something that's not scripture. Uh, Let me show you. It's in Jude. Here it is. Jude chapter. Well, you can pick any chapter you want. Uh, It was about these, these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. There's the prophecy of Enoch. And you, you know where Enoch is in the Old Testament, right? Was not there. Enoch was a prophet. He did say those words. They are in Scripture in the book of Jude, but you won't find it in the Old Testament. Well, let me let me help you a little bit more. This is probably a more familiar statement. It's more blessed to give and to receive. How many have heard this statement before? Raise your hand. Okay, and who said that? He's tricking me. Well, Jesus said it. Okay, it's always the right answer. Amen. Jesus said it. So did he say it in Matthew or Mark? Did he say it in Luke's gospel? Uh, Maybe he said it in John's, right? Well, you can search all four gospels and you won't find Jesus ever saying that. But you can go to the book of Acts and see it. You can see it there in Acts chapter 20. The apostle Paul quoted him. Apparently it was oral tradition. Somebody had heard it. Paul hadn't. Somebody had got passed down. Finds its way into the Bible, but not into the gospels. So, why not? Why not? Why would God say that many prophets were saying that Jesus would be, the Messiah would be a Nazarene? He would come from Nazareth. And not put it actually in, you know, some place in the the Bible as we know it in the Old Testament. Why, Why is that? Why would that be? Well, are you ready for the profound answer? I I have no idea. I don't know what the answer is. But could it be because of the stigma that was attached to Nazareth and anybody who came out of it? Nazareth Nazareth was the place of outcasts. Nazareth was the place of intermixed races, lowlifes, crude and rude and rough People came out of Nazareth. It was the place of outcast. If you were from Nazareth, you were from the wrong side of the track. To be from Nazareth, or to be associated with it, was a, a, a term of derision. You remember when, remember when Philip found his buddy Nathaniel? He'd already encountered Jesus. Remember, he said, he said hey, hey, uh, uh, I, found, I found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Remember what, how Nathaniel responded? Are you kidding me? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, apparently so. I, it's not that Nathaniel was a racial profiler. 
In fact, in the very next verse, it's Jesus said, he commended Nathanael and said, there's a man without guile. Now, he was only pointing to the universal assumption that Nazareth did not breed superstars, it bred outcasts. Even later on in the book of Acts, a lawyer representing the Jewish leaders testifying against Paul before the governor Felix identified Paul as a leader of outcasts when he said, Paul is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's what they called Christians. Because it was, it was lowlifes that came from there. Later, even Jewish historians took advantage of the fact that the Old Testament didn't specifically say that to say that there's no way Messiah would ever come from such an armpit like Nazareth. If that's true, why would God place his son to be raised in an armpit, Nazareth? Why would he do that? The answer is pretty simple, isn't it? Because Jesus Christ came to identify with you and with me. Amen? The holy with the lowly. And his lowliest time was when he hung on that cross 33 years later and bore your sins and my sins upon himself. That was the lowliest time. And if you'll recall, every gospel writer puts an inscription above. And they all identify him as a king, like Matthew does. In fact, Matthew says this, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark and Luke sort of follow suit with their audiences. Matthew writing to the Jews, Mark writing to the Romans, Luke writing to the intelligentsia, the Greeks. But 30 years later, John comes around. And he writes to everybody. He writes to the low lowlifes and to the hoity-toities and everybody in between. He writes to you and he writes to me. And John reminds us that the fuller inscription on that cross said this, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The identifier of all outcasts. Years ago, the Prince of Wales, the heir of the throne of England, went to India. India is a caste system, has been for 2,000 years and if you're, by that, it just means you, whatever you're born into, you stay there. You, you, no aspiration, you're stuck. That's why everybody should watch Slumdog Millionaire. Great movie. I, I just thought came to my mind in the last service, and so I might as well say it again. I can't believe I just promoted the movie, but whatever. But he came there many years ago, and as he came, there were barriers up, and thousands of people were there because, you know, the the future king of England was there. And he was shaking hands with dignitaries, and he saw the barricades, and he said, take those barricades down, to which they did. And thousands of people suddenly just swamped the future king. He would return to India sometime later, and when he 
when he came, there were over 10,000 lowlifes, 10,000 from the caste system, 10,000 who never got an opportunity to see him. 10,000 people were there standing there under a banner that read, Prince of the Outcast. How cool is that? Because that's what Jesus was. He certainly, the prince was to them. How much more Jesus to us? Coming as a child, as a baby, raised in a poor family, growing up with the stigma of being an illegitimate child, even though he wasn't. And in a town thought to be utterly despicable and undesirable for Messiah to originate, Jesus came to us. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Amen? Jesus of Nazareth, prince of the outcast. Is he your prince? Some of you feel like your life is just one big detour. Can I get a witness to that? You're off the beaten path. It's unfamiliar and you're lonely. This is a horrible time of year for you. Some of you just feel like an outcast. You just don't fit anywhere. You're from the wrong side of the track. Let me tell you something. We're all from the wrong side of the tracks. All of us are. That's why Jesus came came to our side, to your side. The word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. He moved into our hood. Aren't you glad? So whether you're cast as being from the wrong side or the right side of the track, it doesn't matter. We're all off the track. We're all outcast, and you need him. I need him. God's word is a light to your path to lead you to Jesus. That's the intention of his word. Is the light coming on? Is it coming on for any of you? Is this starting to make sense? Are you ready to embrace the one who came to live in the place of the outcast to bring you in? God's way often involves detours that take you to Jesus. Do you see him now? Can you accept that? Can you acknowledge that all of these detours in your life, I mean, it's one thing, I mean, it's one thing to have an annoyance just making your way to a building like this one for the past several months. It's another thing to have something interrupted, something come into your life, something you didn't plan, you didn't intend, but it's there. You got to live with it. It's a detour, but it's from God and you got to see it as such. The detours are God's way of pointing us to Jesus and bringing us to Jesus. Do you see him now? God's will is to save outcasts who come to Jesus. Will you admit that you're one? I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't matter where you're at in life right now. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, you are an outcast. It doesn't matter whether you come from a sketchy area or a 
weird upbringing or whatever. It doesn't matter. Just the other day, several friends of mine, I've been, I, 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 they're friends and we work to, I'm working with them and discipling them and their walk with God. We met with a group of other men. There's about 20 of them. I would guesstimate up to a third don't know Jesus, but they're very interested and they're listening in. It's really cool. And one by one, these friends of mine have been sharing their testimonies. I've even shared my own. And, and so you've got a lot of brokenness and in, you know, infidelity and drugs and alcohol and all these things intermingled. But just the other day, one of my friends shared his testimony. And it really resonated with the group. Because he, doesn't, he didn't come from the sketchy area. He didn't come from the low-life town. He had a great wife and some wonderful kids. In fact, he told the story of being at a men's event here at Sailorville a couple of years ago. And in that event, one guy shared his testimony. He'd been an abusive husband. He'd been into drugs. He just was a violent man. And, it was a, and then he got saved. It was a crazy cool testimony. And he said, I sat there and listened to his testimony. I thought, I don't relate at all to him. And then another friend of mine stood up and preached. That friend of mine was from a great family, had a wonderful wife, great kids, was making tons of money. He was making more money he knew how to spend. And yet, just like the other guy, his life was out of control. He was an outcast. And I stood before those men and I made this comment. Whether or not your life is spiraling downward or spiraling upward, it's still spiraling. You're an outcast because you're out of control. You cannot control your destiny. But if you'll cast your soul upon the one who can and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. And that friend of ours humbled his heart right there, placed his faith in Christ, and he was changed. Just like some of you can be changed today, but you got to admit that you're an outcast. You're never going to be saved. You're never going to get inside until you admit you're outside. And we're all from the other side of the tracks, right? Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of the Son of God who became the Son of Man that we might become the sons of God. Moved into our hood, moved into our neighborhood, became like us in every way but never sinned, tempted in every way but never capitulated, and then in an act of unparalleled love, died on the cross and took upon himself our sin. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room. And friend, I just want to, while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed and you're just thinking right now, are those detours in your life, do you see them now? Do you see that they're, they were intentional? That whether you are the culprit and you're the reason that you're off the beaten path somehow, that God is still 
using that detour to point you to himself. Can you see that? For some of you, maybe today is the first day ever in your life where you realized, hey, I am an outcast. My Christian upbringing isn't going to save me. My great job isn't going to save me. My coming to church isn't going to save me. I am an outcast. I am a sinner. I am lost. I need Jesus. I want to believe that he died and rose for me. If that would be you, from your heart right now, call upon him, who has promised us that if you come to him, he will in no way cast you out. So God, help us to cast ourselves upon Jesus with the promise that we will never be cast out and never again be an outcast. For we pray these things in his name. Amen.